0: Good morning, family, and welcome to another online uh, service. Um, As we go through our discipleship course, we are on Lesson 7, and um, also, I hope that everyone is keeping well. We are on Lockdown Day 127, and just seems like as if everything's getting worse and the Bible tells us that even though the days may be dark even though we may be found in a place where that it seems as if there's no hope the word of, Lord, the word of God says that turn to him and cry out and he shall save us from the snare he shall save us from the pestilence. If we just have hope in the Lord. And that we are continually trusting in him. He will protect us. And as we see that the deaths are rising here in South Africa. We believe. That the church needs to pray. Much harder. And to. To keep their faith in the Lord. Now we need to pray, upon, pray for each other and to keep each other in our prayers. I pray, our oh Father, that Lord, you help us to behave like a Christian as we are going to learn in our lesson today. Can we just turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, and we got to continue from where we left off last time. We have stopped at verse 13, and today's sermon is going to be about Romans, chapter 12, verse 14 to 16. Actually, in fact, it's going to be up to 21, but the portion that we are got to deal with And this part of the sermon is 14 to 16. And reading from verse 14 says this, Bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. And I like the way that Paul repeats himself. Where he says, bless those who persecute you. And then he says, it again, bless and don't curse. You know, the word of God says that we will be persecuted. The church will be persecuted. He was speaking to his disciples at the time. And he pointed out to them that... They were going to go through some persecution. And Paul, whose name initially was Saul... When one of the chapters of the book of Acts opens up with that he was the one who was persecuting the church at that time. One of the first martyrs of the Christian church was Stephen, who had been selected by the twelve to look after the widows of the Gentiles as well, to look after the orphans to care for those who were in need and Stephen being a man of faith a man full of the Holy Spirit was caught by Saul and his soldiers and they were brought before the you could say the church of Judah the priests and the high priests and the Pharisees and most probably the Sadducees were standing there as well. And they heard the sermon of Stephen who finally said, I see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Saul ordered that Stephen be stoned. And then they breathed out threats against the Christian church. And he was on his way to Damascus to continue with havoc. When upon that road, he met the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So when Paul was writing this to the church of Rome, to the Christians, the Roman Christians, he told them, I know exactly What it means to be, to persecute. I know exactly what it means to be persecuted. But hear this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Aren't we reminded when Jesus was standing before Pilate? He was given a chance to state his case. And he never turned to his accusers and accused them. Pilate was confused at this change of human nature that he's never seen the like of before. Do you not, yeah? The accusations that they bring against you. And you say nothing. Jesus was scourged. He was whipped. His beard was ripped out. And I'm telling you. If you're a man. You know how painful it is. If you had to take that. Handful of hair. And pull it. And rip it at its roots. Off your face. A crown of thorns was fashioned. I can tell you right now. They were not gentle with those crown of thorns. They pushed it into. Onto his head. They shoved it in. Those thorns cut into flesh. Bent against bone. Ripping asunder blood vessels in the head. A man that stood before the people that day did not look like a man. He was shoved and kicked and punched. Sworn at. And when so much blood was already been lost, he had to now pick up a heavy cross and take it through the city of Jerusalem to outside the city gates to the Mount of Golgotha. Eventually when they got to Mount Golgotha, they threw him onto that cross, pulled his arms on either side of him and they nailed him. I do not think they were very gentle when they put their cross back up. Most probably into its hole or whatever. Things they had put in place in order to hold it up straight every jerk, every bump was an agony. Through all this there were even two other men who were crucified next to him, criminals who were accused justly for their crimes one man was very much for himself. Demanded that. If you are the son of God. Take us off this cross. That was more of a taunt. It was more. Trying to get out of his punishment. But the other man says you know. We were justly accused. Because we did do. Thievery. For you know that the story that Jesus was telling in the Gospels of the Good Samaritan, where there was a bunch of guys who jumped out and robbed this man and beat him up to near death, it could have been a true story. Maybe these were the very two criminals who had done just exactly that. And the one man says, "We were justly accused." This is our punishment. We have done wrong. And he turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your authority, when you come into your kingdom. Through all this, Jesus did not once accuse anyone of anything. But he prayed a blessing. He said, Lord, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And here yeah, Paul is speaking to the Roman church. And he says bless those who persecute you. Yes I know it's hard. Do not curse them. The Bible says that when we are persecuted. And as we are going through the pressures of life. that is only through such pressures. pressures, just like a coal is pressurized and eventually becomes a diamond. I remember last semester when, in one of my lectures, we were speaking about one of the chapters of Communicating Effectively in regards to the Good Samaritan, but more in particular in regards to the Beatitudes. There was an area where it says that if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If your enemy is hungry, give him some, something to eat. Because by doing all this, you pour fire on him. What does this mean? It means that the enemy cannot understand why you are doing good for him. Yes, they will do so much bad, hoping that they will change that human nature. But at the end of the day, we do not have the human nature. Because the Spirit has planted within us the fruit of kindness, of long-suffering. Oh, praise God, praise God. Paul continues, rejoice for those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind, one toward another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own conceits. When Paul was talking about persecution, it was as if it was being prophetic. Because the the mighty persecution, the terrible persecution had not just had not happened yet. It was still to come. Yes, they most probably were persecuted, but it was not as bad as what was still to come. And Paul was Telling them you better start doing it now. Paul's counsel is even useful at this time of gentler circumstances. Devoted Christians will often attract opposition, and these opponents. Will even be violent. And Paul calls us to meet this violence not with violence. Do not respond to evil with evil because it does not make it right. Scripture says respond to evil with good. And Paul calls us to meet this violence not with violence but with blessing. Jesus even spoke about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 44, where he says, Turn the other cheek. There's even a portion where he says that when you're asked to go a mile, Don't just stop at one mile to go for a second. But a couple of weeks ago I was listening to an article it was very interesting because it said that the tradition of the Romans when they were carrying their luggage or whatever they needed to take And they'll stop on the road and they'll point out to a Jew. And they'll say, take my stuff. And by the Roman law, the Jew will take the stuff only for one mile. And for when they reach that mile, they will put the stuff down and they will leave. And the Roman soldier will turn around and look for another candidate who will be coming down the road or up the road and you'll point to that person say, take my stuff and that person will go for another mile. And here's Jesus saying, if you are asked to take the stuff for a mile, don't stop at the mile, go for another one. Hey, imagine that. I'm sure that Roman soldier was walking and he's counting down the the, the meters and when he eventually reached the mile, he stops and the guy continues like, uh, uh, hello, what's going on here? You've reached your mile, stop. And imagine if the person turns around and says, don't worry my friend, I can go for another mile, let's go. That would have been very confusing to some people. But the law said, I am not under the law, I am under grace. Your Roman law says I must stop at one mile, but by grace, by the love that Jesus has implanted in my heart, I will take you for another mile. Let's go, my brother. When you're asked to do something, do it with all your passion and with all your strength. Do it to the best of your ability. And the Lord will bless you for it. Because you are fulfilling what scripture has stated. To behave like a Christian. To love our enemies. To pray for those who persecute us. It's difficult, I tell you my brothers and sisters. It's difficult to pray for your enemies. You come before the Lord and you say, Lord, I praise you, I thank you. You go through all the, the, the systematic points of worshipping the Lord and then you come to the point of praying for your family, praying for your church and praying for your brothers and sisters. And when you come to the person who said something so bad, when you come to the person who is your enemy, and the words tend to evaporate. You have no more words to say. You go into a moment of silence. Your brain freezes. The words stumble and fall flat. You have a moment of silence for a while and then you go over to your needs and suddenly you have a wealth of words again. You have another avalanche of, of, of points you're laying out. Lord, I need this. I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you will bless me with this and this and that. But what happened to the point where you were supposed to pray for your enemies? Why did you suddenly have no more words? Because human nature dictates that we avenge ourselves of those who hurt us. And those who are against us, we do not think about in terms of friendliness, but of hatred. We seek ways to bring them down to a downfall. But the Word of God says, "Love your neighbor, your your in, your enemies, and pray for them." That is a whole change. A gift shift in your life. Now you have to think of them kindly. You have to look for ways of mending the rift between you and that person. When you start praying for them, you pray for blessings. When you pray for them, you pray for understanding of the situation. You pray for love and forgiveness. You cannot hurt the one that you are praying for. You cannot be nasty to the one that you have spent an hour weeping before the Lord. Asking for forgiveness and salvation. The Lord sees in secret. That person might never know that you are praying for them. But the Lord knows. And as you continue praying for that person, you start to find that you cannot say a harsh word about that person. When there's gossiping in the office, when there's people that are talking bad things about that person, you'll find that the words that you used to speak, they used to come so easily to you, to say something bad about that person, suddenly evaporates. You don't have such words anymore. And when you open your mouth to speak something bad, you suddenly hear yourself saying something good about that person. Kind words. I'm telling you now that the people in your office will look at you very surprised and ask, is this the same person? How can you be so friendly? Are you friends with this guy? Are you friends with this woman? Maybe you're not friends with that person, but you will not find any bad words coming out of your mouth. Because why? The Spirit has removed that seed of bitterness from your heart and has planted the agape love. Pray for your enemies. Behave like a Christian. He calls us to forgive. Forgive. So that we might be forgiven. When you read the book of Luke. Chapter 6 verse 37. When you read. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And as you go further down. You see there where he reads. Where he says. My disciples. Ask the Lord your father. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And as you go further down, when the Lord ends up with an amen to the prayer that he was teaching his people, he continues with a conclusion. It is strange that he did not conclude by pulling out and saying that, do not use the God and Lord, Lord's name in vain when you say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No. He didn't say that, you know, when you pray for your daily offering, when you pray for your daily bread, ask the Lord only for what you need and not for what you want. No. He didn't continue with how to be delivered from the evil one. No. He took at one point from the entire prayer teaching of his disciples to his disciples. And he said, forgiveness, that's the watchword. If you do not forgive, the Lord cannot forgive you. If you do not forgive, the Lord will not answer your prayer. If you do not forgive, the Lord will not hear your prayer. Forgive. If you want to be forgiven, you need to forgive. Amen. At the cross, we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Acts chapter 7, verse sixty: Stephen was praying as though he was being stoned. Oh Lord, don't hold the sin against them. When you follow Jesus, you become like Jesus. When you walk with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, you become like Jesus. When Jesus, remember what I said, what would Jesus do? And I said that would rather change the WWJD to WDJD. What did Jesus do? And what did he do? He did not curse his enemies. He did not uh, slay them with the word. He did not call down the angels to, in order to, to uh, 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 kill all the people that was... Uh, hurting him. No, he said, Lord, my my God, my Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And yet we see Stephen praying the same prayer in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60. Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And Paul was writing to the church of Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter 4 verse 12. When people curse us, we bless. <laughs> Being persecuted, we endure. Peter later on, when he was writing his epistle on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he advised not rendering evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead blessing. Knowing that to this were you called that you may inherit a blessing. Amen. Don't we want to be blessed? We do. All of us want to be blessed. Some blessings are not automatic. Some blessings require that you do something on your part to obtain this blessing. When something is evil done to you, don't turn it around and do evil back. No. When someone insults you, don't turn around and say, well, you're mother, or you're this and you're that. No. Well, what do we do? Bless you, my brother. Bless you, my sister. The Word of God also says that a kind word turns aside a harsh word. Well, I am paraphrase that. What it means is that when someone is using a harsh word against you, when they are cursing you or insulting you, the word of God says, Speak kindly. By speaking kindly, you will be deflating that balloon. Because that fight will be only one-sided. We read in Genesis chapter 27 and 30 that these blessings were treated as having great substance, a great value. In that context, the person bestowing a blessing was, in a sense, asking God to bless the other person. (laughs) In the Old Testament... There was this ideology of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We see this in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. But in Matthew 5, verse 38 to 41, Jesus turns his legalism on his head. Blessed. The Greek word that was used for blessing or blessed in the New Testament is Makarios. In verse 15 we read, rejoice for those who rejoice. Weep for those who weep. Remember at the beginning last week, we started with a text of agape. Let love agape be without hypocrisy. In verse 9. And yeah, we have to remember that verse because agape love desires what is good for the beloved. So it'll be natural if we are using agape love and we are practicing it and that we are not pretending because remember I said that hypocrisy, the root word of it, was used for acting. It was not true. No truth behind your actions. You're just playing by a script, start from the heart. So it would follow that we would rejoice or weep with the beloved. But the problem is this, is that we follow our human hearts, where we find ourselves jealous of other people's good fortune. How can he get this and this and that? How can she receive such recognition for that and that and that? I am better than them all. I should be getting all of that. Is that how a church is supposed to act? No, no. That's not how a church is supposed to act. You know, the seed that's planted in good soil. Maybe good as you feel, is think is good, but what happens is that the devil comes to steal it. He takes away our our uh, pleasures. He takes away our rest and our peace. When you think everything is going right, and then suddenly your neighbor gets some form of recognition or some reward, and we get become jealous. How can they? In something we don't even recognize, understand. We don't understand why we feel like this. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And we cannot rejoice with them because we are jealous. And jealous brings bitterness. It's difficult, yes. But the Lord never said it would be easy. We have to work on our salvation as Paul was working on his salvation every day with fear and trembling, being sure that every time when something good happened to someone else, he rejoiced with them, but he did not and he made kick his heart to say, Is this true or am I acting? Weep with those who weep, don't judge them, and say, yeah, you did something wrong in your life, that's why you're where you are. Your neighbor has lost everything, he lost his car, he lost his marriage, his marriage fell apart, he's lost his family, he's lost his house. And we sit there on our porches with our feet up, drinking iced tea or whatever you have in your hand, judging. Yeah, there we are. See, we told you that they had some secret sin. There it's coming out. There's the dirty laundry. And we sit there and we're judging away while we ourselves are in the same predicament. Our marriage is also having problems. Our homes having problems. Our finances having problems. But <coughs> we sit there and we judge. And Paul says, Stop it! You are not behaving like a Christian. When someone gets something, bless them, praise them, rejoice with them. When they've lost everything and they are crying, the eyes that weep with them. Don't judge. This is a requirement of a very high degree of discipleship. It's something we should be aspiring to it's something we should be praying for in the first part of verse 16 it says be of the same mind one toward another to auto es elenus for Amen. Fronuntes. Let me repeat that. to a If we had to read it, it literally, it means this, thinking the same thing toward one another. You know, Paul was saying, you guys don't need to agree at every point but everyone has a voice everyone has an opinion and because we feel well your opinion does not matter shut up sorry to use a harsh word keep quiet close your mouth and be silent no Paul was saying that be agreeable You might not agree with that person's point of view. It does not mean that you need to fight that person on that point of view. It does not mean that you need to say, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. And just throw it and embarrass the person. No, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things. But associate with the humble. The second part of 16b. We read this and it brings to mind that the central theme of this epistle it comes from Romans chapter 3 verse 9. That where it talks about that we are all sinners, but we are saved by the grace of God. Rather than by anything we have done in verse 24 of the same chapter. Therefore, we are all equal under God's grace. You see, we think that by our works we become saved. But then any person can work to become saved. But it's by the grace of God that we are saved. You cannot save anyone, only the Lord does. The Lord will use you as an instrument, as a conduit, but you're not the person saving the person. Because we read in the first uh, The next part of the verse, in verse 16, still, towards the last part, says, Don't be wise in your own conceits. (laughs) This is very good advice for every human relationship, is it not? Humility draws people near. Humility attracts people. But what happens is that, when we get conceited, we start to repel people away. Quite com- competence trumps loud, semi-competence. You know, we want to be praised for all the things we do. We want to be glorified in the things that we do. It happens to everyone. It happens to me as well. But what happens is this: is that when you're quietly doing the work that needs to be done, and you're humble with what you do, the Word of God says it, it might not happen immediately, but in the long run you will be recognized for what you do. Those who are loudly praising their efforts and all the things that they do, We'll have the time for the time. But there will come a time when you will be raised up. And be praised and... That's what the Word of God says. Don't be wise in your own conceits. We get to the next, last bit of verses of this sermon... We read from Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. And the context we read this is repay no one evil for evil. We've already spoken a little bit about this. I was a bit of a head myself. When I spoke about bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Don't curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. And let's read the, uh, the scripture. Where it says. Repay no one evil for evil. Respect what is horrible in the sight of all men. If it is possible. As much as it was up to you. Be at peace with all men. <laughs> as Paul says. If it is possible. If it is within your power. Be at peace with all men. Don't seek revenge yourselves my brother. Don't respect. Don't revenge yourselves, beloved. But you need to give place to God's vengeance, to his wrath. Because why? The Bible, as Paul was saying, guys, do you know the scripture? Go back into the Old Testament. It is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And what this guy says, therefore... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. (laughs) For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome. Don't be overcome. The Greek word that we use there for overcome is nikko. Or niko, Which means to be conquered. And they use this word sometimes with by evil. To be overcome by evil. So what's Paul trying to say Don't be overcome. Do not be conquered by evil, but overcome. And the Greek word that is he's using is not niko, but nika. But conquer. Niko, be conquered. Nika, conquer. Don't be overcome. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Repay no one evil for evil. Brings us back to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them but do not curse them. Verse 17b. Respect what is horrible in the sight of all men. The world is watching you, my brothers and sisters. They are looking at you, how you dress, how you carry yourself, how you speak to one another. How how you speak to people who are not of your culture, who are not of your church, you know, who are not of your, your color maybe? How do you speak to them? We must be careful, not only about proper conduct, but also about appearances. I do not know if you ever heard of Billy Graham. Go to YouTube and do a search and you will see all his sermons. Preaching to packed stadiums. A man of God. He was asked to come to the White House one time. Well, he's been to the White House many times. But there's one time he was at the White House. And he found himself alone in the room with the First Lady, Hillary Clinton. Clinton. In a time when Bill Clinton was the president. And Billy Graham asked that the door to the dining room remain open while he was having lunch with Hillary Clinton at the White House. This was very unusual to the people on uh, that place. You're going to be sitting with the president's wife. You're having lunch with the president's wife. Should the door not be closed so you can have a private audience with the president's wife. Bill Clinton for many years had been preaching about the gospel. He had lived the gospel. He had behaved and was behaving like a Christian explained his purpose, his reason that he had requested that the door to the dining room remain open. He explained that he had for many years observed the rule that he will never be alone behind closed doors with any woman other than his wife. This was one of the many rules that he followed for the sake of his reputation. We do not know if the story is true, whether it's apocryphal or whether it's... But the whole thing is the story carries a seed. That the care with which Christians must respect what is horrible in the sight of men. All men. And the more visible your position becomes, the more careful you must be. I mean, he could have asked that the door be closed... You could have not said anything. And the story could have went around, you know, like wild oats. In this day and age, people can make up a story and everyone will take it as true. Even if it's not true. That he could have came on to the First Lady of America. But Billy Graham understood one thing. He had a reputation as a preacher of the gospel, as a minister of the word, as a Christian who was following Jesus Christ. And this reputation he had to look after very carefully. Because the scripture says, do all things horrible in the sights of all men. I mean, any man would have loved to be behind closed doors in private audience with the first lady, but Bill Billy Graham was not really interested in that. He was interested in his reputation. And this was when he, one of the many rules that he followed. Because you understood the more visible that our position is, the more careful we must be. Because the devil is seeking to destroy us. That's what the word of God says. Don't pretend. Be who God created you to be. Be who you have become in Christ. Be respectful in all things, at all times, whether in private or in public. In this day and age, we think that our private lives are private, but you'll find that our private lives become public very quickly. If it is possible, as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all men, in verse 18. Throughout this entire scripture Paul was giving short to the point commands with that qualification He says let love be without hypocrisy abhor that which is evil cling to that which is good But now when he comes to be at peace with all men he inserts two qualifications two clauses if you will if it is possible and as much as it is up to you. There are, unfortunately, there are people who will not allow us to live in peace. And Paul does not require that we be at peace with them. He only requires that we do our part to establish peaceful relationships. I remember the one time in class when I said that if you have aught against your brother, go to your brother, make peace with him and come back and give your offering at the altar. And remember, one student says, what happens if your brother does not want to make peace with you? Therefore, this scripture will meet that answer. You have done your part of making peace. If your brother does not, the blood will not be upon your head. You have tried your side to make peace. And if your brother does not, refuse refuses. You have done your part. You can only pray for their salvation. You can only pray for their forgiveness. But you are not required to take vengeance for what has been done. Paul says this, that we only do our part to establish peaceful relationships He says, does not hold us responsible for the other person's response to our efforts. After all, we cannot control the other person. We can only control ourselves. So if it's possible, as much as up to you, be a peaceful man. If they're not peaceful with you, that's fine. You've done your part. Don't seek to revenge yourself, beloved. Give place to God's wrath. For it is written, "Vengeance belongs to me; I will repay," says the Lord. It seems like if we go through this chapter, through these verses that we have read, that this is the third time that Paul is telling us not to seek vengeance. Many times, if something bad is done to you, leave it to the Lord. When your boss takes out his frustration on you, the Lord says, leave it to the Lord. Don't fight back. When someone in your office is cursing you and used and, and, and uh, slandering you, the Lord says, don't avenge yourself. Leave it to the Lord. The Lord will do the right thing. You know, it's difficult to do this. We want to, we we, we get that adrenaline pumping in our hearts, in our bodies. We have the fight or flight response, but it's more of a fighting response. We want to fight back. We want to curse. We want to destroy. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Don't revenge yourself. Trust God to do the right thing. If the person is deserving punishment, God will take care of it. Whether it's now on the day of judgment, leaving the matter in God's hands solves a host of problems. Sorry. Plurality is in the wrong word. Solves a host of problems. God is a perfect judge. will not make a mistake as we would make a mistake. and We can destroy lives without even intentionally destroying lives. God is in a position to ensure that justice will be served. Because when we revenge ourselves, we are just putting ourselves in a physical or legal jeopardy by seeking revenge. A vengeance. Paul says, vengeance is mine. He's referring to God. He's also quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32 to 35. And as we come to the last part of our sermon, in verse 20, we read, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, your heap calls a fire on his head. And this is where Paul was quoting Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 to 22, almost exactly. Which can be also compared to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13. But he leaves out the last half of 25 verse 22. And Yahweh will reward you. We do not know why maybe Paul left that last part out. If he was directly quoting from the scriptures. But maybe he found that by quoting that. We will do it in order to self-serve ourselves. Which is not what he was wanting, looking to do. We need to feed and give drink to our enemy. But remember now, Paul's not literally saying this. He is using the food and drink as metaphors for any kind of needed help. It does not mean that, well, uh, you need money. Well, the Bible says I need to feed you if you're hungry. I need to give you water if you're thirsty. did not say anything else. That's all I'm going to do. No. These are metaphors What Paul was trying to say is that If they are in need of something Meet their need If you see your enemy stuck in a ditch Lend a helping hand If you're driving past (laughs) And you see your enemy On the side of the road And it's getting dark outside And he's struggling to change that tyre The word of God says, don't drive by laughing at them. Do not drive by and say, (laughs) yes, serves you right. See, the Lord has paid you back what you have done to me. No. The word of God says, stop. Go lend a helping hand. Yes, you may hate each other. But behave like a Christian. Remember what I said in the previous verse. Don't seek, seek, no sorry, sorry, uh, if it is possible as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all men. So it's up to you to stop. Get out of your car. Take out your crowbar or your spanner or whatever it needs in order to fix the situation. Don't walk up to the man and hit him over the head with it. Walk up to the man and say, how can I help? Yes, the man might refuse your help and say, why are you helping me? You know what I've done to you. The word of (laughs) God says that by doing this, you'll be heaping coals of fire on his head. Most scholars agree that this means that the recipients of our grace will burn with shame at having treating us, treated us badly. And what Paul was trying to say is that your enemy will then, with all possibilities, become your friend. How many of our enemies have been stuck in a situation in their lives? And had turned around and all their friends had gone. Sorry my brother, I will help you if I could. I've got an appointment to meet. Sorry my brother, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Your friends will disappear when you are in dire need of assistance. And then the person that you have been cursing, the person that you have been swearing about, the person that you have been spreading false stories about and bearing false witness against, will stop. And look at you and say, well, how can I help you? And imagine the battle in that person's heart as you are busy taking all of those bolts or the tire and changing the tire and the mind is going... Crazy and say, "How can you be helping me when you I've hurt you so badly?" You'll be heaping coals of fire up on the on the head. Amen. How can you be helping me when I have done so much bad against you? And that person will look around and he see his friends are gone. And the man or the woman that he hates or she hates is here helping them. And what Paul is saying that the end result might be that you have won another friend. The best way <laughs> that Paul was trying to say the best way to conquer an enemy is to make him or her our friend. Does the end justify the means? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Does the end justify the means? Paul says in this verse that it does not. If we use the evil to... Uh, evil means to achieve a worthwhile end, Our evil means will compromise both our character and our witness. You're trying to preach the word of God, you're trying to say, look at me as I follow Christ and follow me, therefore as I teach you how to follow Christ, and then we do these things, it compromises our character. How can we preach the gospel when we are not living it? How can we Live an example to our disciples, live an example to the world outside when we use evil means in order to get what we want. Paul says this does not help, it compromises our character, it compromises our witness. The fruit of the Holy Spirit that's within our heart suddenly changes. We cannot do what Christ has called us to do if we are compromising what he's called us to do. And we can only accomplish this through the ultimate Christian virtue of love. You want to behave like a Christian? Let's go back to the first part. Of these gifts. The first part. Of the fruit. When Paul opened up. The scripture. He started by the most important thing. Love. He didn't use. Philos. He didn't use. Eros. He didn't use. Storge. He used the highest form of love. I got there. To behave like a Christian, we need to develop these attitudes. To develop to, to behave like a Christian, we need to develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. To behave like a Christian. Our actions need to be consistent with God's standards found in his word. To behave like a Christian. We need to love. Jesus said the two most important scriptures, the two most important commandments in the Bible Was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second one, not lesser, but just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus told his disciples that, he says, You know, I'm going to leave you with a new commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you. That you love one another, that the world, when they see you loving one another, with such pure love, they'll know that you are my disciples. And that is part of the discipleship course, is that we need to behave like a Christian. When the disciples took on the Master, they became like the Master. When Jesus chose 12 disciples. They worked at becoming like Jesus. I can tell you right now that many times they were very confused at all the things that Jesus did. Because it was unusual for someone to behave like that. In the face of persecution to show them love. How could you? How is it possible? But I believe by the leading of the Holy Spirit, by the reading of the Word and by much prayer. And as time went by they became more and more like Jesus. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot love one another with a humanistic love that requires some recompense, some reciprocity. In other words, we cannot love one another without desiring and demanding something back. But the Word of God says, you got you. At times, the love will not be returned, but it says still, continue to love them because the Lord has loved you. So as we close this chapter, and I'm not talking about the lesson itself, next week we'll continue with our module in going through the chapter on behaving like a Christian and reading through the key verse of Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 to 17. If we can also understand Romans, this chapter that where Paul wrote about how we should behave and how we should care for one another and how we should live, I believe we will get closer and closer to him. And I also believe that we will, our lives will change as we become more and more Christ-like. Mighty neighbor Jesus, I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have with you. We thank you that we are gathered here to praise your name, to glorify you, to give you all the praise and all the glory. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we work through our Christian walk, that we'll become more and more like you, and that we'll love one another as you have loved us. I pray that, Lord, as we have now concluded with this two-part sermon, that we'll become more like you, Lord Jesus, and we'll behave like a Christian. That we'll love with a gap love, Lord. And that we will not take vengeance on one another when something bad is done to us, Lord. But rather that we live in peace with one another. As we should and as we must. I pray, our Father God, that Lord, as we pray for the nation. I pray for our leaders, Lord, that you'll guide them in all the decisions that they have to make that your hand will be upon them Lord Jesus and that your spirit will lead them along the ways of everlasting truth and life. I pray almighty God for wisdom to be upon each one Lord Jesus and I also pray for the people who are running the hospitals I pray for the people of other God who are running the care centres and that your hand will be upon them Lord That you will give them the strength, and you will give them the wisdom, you will give them the passion. As they are the front line defence against this virus, that is attacking our nation and attacking those other countries around the world. I pray, Father God, for your people, Lord. That your hand of blessing will be upon them, Lord Jesus. I pray, our Lord, for your forgiveness upon this nation, Lord. Upon all the things that we may have done wrong, Lord Jesus, I pray for a turning. I pray, Lord, that you will guide us back upon the path that you have set before us. You will guide us, you will keep us. God, direct our steps along the ways of everlasting. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for this time and this opportunity, O Father. For those who are sick, Lord, I pray, O oh, Father, that you will heal them. I pray, O oh, Lord, that you will strengthen their muscles, O Father God. You'll give them the breath. That they need, Lord. As your word says, it's by your will, Lord, that all creation lives. All creation survives. It's by your will that all creation breathes. And just as you breathe in Adam, Lord, the breath of life, I pray that you breathe the breath of life into those who are struggling for that breath. And as they get stronger, Lord, I pray that you will eradicate all sin, all, um, vi- uh, all signs of the virus that's in their body. Strengthen their hands, strengthen their muscles, strengthen their heart, strengthen their minds, strengthen their, their lungs, Lord Jesus. Those who are sick, those who are close to dying, will stand up, rejuvenated, re-strengthened. I also pray, Father, that each person will realize that you are God. I thank you, Lord, for this time. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.